0: Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, September 7th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. The African Union at 20, while peace and security seem elusive. If the
1: AU standby force could not stop the conflict in Ethiopia, how can they stop conflict in South Sudan? How can they stop conflict in uh, Somalia?
0: What's fueling the violence in Burkina Faso? Eswatini marks 54 years of independence, but some see nothing to celebrate. The UN documents gross human rights violations in South Sudan. The party of Malawi's vice president wants him out of the governing alliance.
2: It's an obvious thing that the UTM doesn't have very active participation in this government. Without the head of UTM participating in the government... Then, yes, we can say we are being sidelined.
0: And Cameroon and Chad truckers protest bad roads and government ban on heavy trucks. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. African Union is 20 years old this year since its founding in 2002. Some have praised the organization for strengthening Africa's voice on the global stage. However, critics say the AU has done a poor job in dealing with the multitude of conflicts and unconstitutional changes of governments on the continent. Professor Adeoye Akinola is Head of Research at the University of Johannesburg's Institute for Pan-African Thought and Conversation. The Institute will host a three-day symposium in early November to reflect on the AU at 20 years of age and how the continental body can ensure sustainable peace. Akinola tells me that the AU's financial and institutional weaknesses have impacted its effectiveness and its peace and security mechanism has underperformed.
1: First and foremost, I think there have been relatively lack of commitment among the political elites that are driving the African regional agenda, which is slightly different from regionalism that we have in Europe. For example, where you have the, the civil society organization and private sector driving the integration process in a way. One of the constraints has been lack of this political will. Because the state itself in Africa has been part of the problems and the political elites in these days have been the people championing the cause and the direction of the African Union. So it has been very difficult for the AU to actually intervene the way that a regional or supranational organization would have loved to do. There's also this struggle between the, what we call the R2P, the responsibility to intervene when human lives are in jeopardy. But there's still this understanding in Africa that the sovereignty of the members must be respected, and many of the leaders of this state even causing the conflict are part of the actors within the AU that will sit and means, and so there's all kinds of complications. We also need to be mindful of the rapidity of conflict, the resurgence of maybe military coup. for instance. It is actually happening at a faster pace than the structures within the AU. The African standby force also have been particularly weak. Let's take Ethiopia
0: T-grade conflict as one example of the conflicts happening around Africa. What would you say about the AU's role?
1: The AU have been particularly passive. Maybe they are passive because of the individual, the actor involved, because of his personality within the AU. Or maybe they are passive because they are very close to the crisis zone. Or the expectation is just that since we have a hand by for, this is not about supporting a, a faction. It's just to make sure that there are humanitarian assistance. But the AU Secretariat itself is just about 1,000, less than 1, two hundred kilometers to the conflict zone. If the AU standby force or whatever peace architecture even like the early warning system or the Council of the White could not stop the conflict in Ethiopia. How can they stop conflict in South Sudan? How can they stop conflict in uh, Somalia? So that's really a, what we call a blemish on the part of the AU.
0: There are those who give the African Union high marks. For example, they say oh, the African Union is there and is bringing about a more united Africa. Also, democracy.
1: Yeah. One thing we can really commend the EU for is to roll out uh, very stimulating programs. Agenda like the 2063. But despite the optimism that surrounds it, but there's also this pessimism that the EU might not be able to even drive their member states to achieve this agenda. For instance, if you talk of uh, their ability to promote democracy, then the question is what kind of democracy is being promoted in Africa? It's actually elitist democracy, elitist form of democracy. It's not really a representative form of democracy. How can can there be democracy where people even within africa are hostile to one another how can there be governance when the locals in the state are revolting against foreigners I came from the same African streets. Thank you so much, Professor.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you. Adel Akinola is the head of research and teaching at the University of Johannesburg's Institute for Pan-African Thought and Conversation. He was speaking with us from Johannesburg. At least 35 people were killed and dozens of others wounded in Burkina Faso on Monday when a vehicle in a convoy hit a roadside bomb. It is the latest in a string of deadly attacks in a West African country. No one has claimed responsibility for the blast, but the country has faced hundreds of attacks from Islamist groups. Dr. Daniel Aizenga, an expert on the Sahel with the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, says there are many drivers fueling the violence in Burkina Faso, but the primary one is the militant Islamic insurgency that began targeting the region in 2016.
3: Over the last uh, six years, it's it's really ramped up. So we've seen seen these militant Islamist groups target soft targets like hotels or you know sort of populated areas and urban centers to becoming much more of a rural uh, insurgency. And uh, in these last two years, it's it's really accelerated. Um, The security situation has deteriorated so much so that you know nearly two million people have been displaced from their homes. And just for context. Um, Burkina Faso has a little more than 20 million uh, citizens, and so you know you're talking about almost one in 10 people uh, being displaced. Uh, militant Islamist groups have been targeting these thoroughfares, and so they've been laying IEDs. And when they target uh, the military as well as civilian convoys, they're really uh, just trying to prevent people from being able to to use the those corridors as uh, for transportation. Well, what are these groups? And mostly, I take it they're linked with Al Qaeda and the Islamic State. What do they want in Burkina Faso, and, and are they, um, and not just in Burkina Faso, in the Sahel? So this is this is where things get a little bit messy uh, and complicated. There are militant Islamist groups operating in the region that uh, profess uh, their allegiance, if you like, to Al Qaeda. Um, there there is a group in the region called Islamic State in Greater Sahara. Um, which has pledged its allegiance to um, Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. And so there there are these global connections, uh, at least in terms of, of communication strategies and, and media, but it's less clear when you're talking about sort of financial support or other materials supports or um, or, or foreign fighters coming to Burkina Faso or neighboring countries uh, that We haven't really seen those types of connections or dynamics evolve in, in this particular theater. And to your question, it doesn't just concern Burkina Faso. It also concerns the neighboring countries of Mali and Niger. These three countries have really been kind of the epicenter of, of this rural insurgency for the last uh, three, four, five years. Who were the main targets of these attacks? I mean, are they intentionally going after civilians? In some instances, yes. Um, so in some instances, civilians have been targeted by militant isthmus groups in the region. Um, this tends to be um, kind of a, a reprisal type of dynamic uh, in which uh, you have um, uh, local civilian-led militias that have emerged to sort of self-defense to try and protect their communities from from these militant isthmus groups, which will at times, uh, you know, enforce, arrive and coerce, sort of a taxation that sort of extortion. Military rulers who seized power in Burkina Faso in January said that they would make uh, fighting these armed groups their top priority. How successful have they been? Uh, I I think, you know, sadly, they have not been very successful. Um, They've pursued a few different changes in policy. Uh, Perhaps the most drastic one was to set up special military zones where they effectively asked all Burkina Bay citizens that were living in those zones to leave. They set a deadline for after that deadline. If anyone found in those zones, uh, they would be considered hostile. and, And the idea was to sort of clear that territories.
0: That was Daniel Aizenga, an expert on the Sahel with the African Center for Strategic Studies. He was speaking with viewers' Carol Van A joint report released by the United Nations Mission in South Sudan and the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights has documented gross violations and abuses of international human rights law and serious violations of international humanitarian law in South Sudan's United State. An army spokesperson said the violations were committed during clashes between joint government forces aided by affiliated militias and the SPLM in opposition forces loyal to the first vice president,
4: Deng Guy Dang, has the details for VOA from Boa. The new UN report says more than 170 civilians were killed and more than 30 women and children were abducted between February 11th and May 31st of this year in the three counties of Koch, Lair and Mayandit, along with neighboring areas in Unity State. And Mrs. spokesperson Linda Tom says more than 130 cases of rape and gang rape were well documented.
5: These violations were committed during clashes between joint government forces and affiliated armed militias or groups. On one hand, and elements of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement or Army in opposition, loyal to First Vice President Riek Machar, on the other. The hostilities in Southern Unity State affected at least 28 villages and settlements, with approximately 173 civilians killed, 12 injured, and 37 women and children abducted.
4: The report says many of the abductees were subjected to sexual violence, including a 90-year-old girl who was allegedly gang-raped to death.
5: Many of the abductees were subjected to sexual violence, including girls as young as eight and a nine-year-old girl who was gang-raped to death.
4: The special representative of the Secretary General and head of the UN mission in South Sudan, Nicholas Aysum, said this year's human rights violations were committed with impunity. South Sudan Information Minister and Government Spokesperson Michael McQuay disputes their findings in the report, calling them, quote, lame accusations.
6: These are reports which are usually concocted by those who are paid in order to write what, they, what the others want to be written. If there is anything as such, are they supposed to write to whom they are supposed to report to the government of South Sudan? A Human Rights Commission is here in South Sudan. All the other, info, including Ministry of Information, why should they be writing all these? And then you go and pick them from there and you come and ask us about them. Why don't you ask them, did you report this to the government? Anybody who has, a, who is genuine and doing everything in good faith is supposed to report to the government.
4: Mokwe acknowledges clashes occurred in Unity's coach, lair, and minded counties, but asserts that the government intervened and quelled the conflict, which he labelled intercommunal.
6: Yes, uh, there there was a fight, and if there was a fight, that fight has taken place, and the government has intervened, and it arrested the situation. Now, how can the government be... And you have been following the news, by the way. Yeah. Now, how, the, how can the government be accused of a, being a human rights violator at a time when it went there to stop a fighting between communities? And they have managed to do it, and they have collected a lot of arms.
4: When contacted for comment, Pok Both Balwang, the SPLMIO's Director of Information and Public Relations, said he was on a plane and could not respond to the joint UN report. Several porn calls to Lampol Gabriel, the SPLAIO spokesperson, when unanswered. And Ms. Chief A.S.M. says the government is duty-bound under international law to protect civilians, investigate allegations of human rights violations, and hold suspected perpetrators accountable in compliance with fair trial standards. For VOA News, I am Dengai Deng. You are listening to Daybreak
0: Africa on The Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, September 7th. In Malawi, officials of the United Transformation Movement, the UTM, the party of Vice President Solos Chalima, say they want him to withdraw from the ruling Tons Alliance. They accused the administration of President Lastra Chakwera of sidelining the party on governance issues. In June this year, President Chakwera stripped some of Chalima's delegated powers over allegations of accepting kickbacks in return for government contracts. La McMacena reports. From Blantyre.
5: UTM party officials made known their concerns during the political rally its top officials organized over the weekend. It was the first meeting since June when President Chakwera announced that he has stopped delegating Chirima official duties until corruption allegations are investigated. This was also the first rally of the UTM's top ranking officials since the nine party Tose Alliance won the court-sanctioned presidential election in 2020. Chirima is president of the UTM and in 2020 elections, he partnered with MCP leader Razalas Chakwira, who is the current president of Malawi. The director for strategy of UTM party, Norman Nirenta, was among the speakers at a rally held in Indiland township in Blantar. He said President Chakwera's treatment of Vice President Chilima is concerning to the UTM party as a whole, saying the Vice President worked hard to help the Tose Alliance win the elections. Nirenda reminded Chakwera how he tried to convince their president to form the alliance. He also reminded Chakwera that he never conducted a campaign rally in the southern region, but instead it was Chilima who was doing that. Other speakers said UTM members are being sidelined from receiving loans under the National Economic Empowerment Fund and asked Chilima to leave the alliance and concentrate on building his UTM party. Kamosu Chihuambo is spokesperson for the governing Tonsei Alliance. He told VOA Tuesday that UTM party officials should have chosen a proper channel for expressing their concerns about the Tonsei Alliance administration.
6: Much as uh, I know that uh, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but uh, some of the speakers went overboard, those issues... Uh, can best be addressed internally. But uh, in this particular case, we have not yet reached that point. So I uh, would urge that um, we leave matters as they are and that the internal machinery should be able to take care of business.
5: Joambo, also president of People's Transformation Party, could not tell if other alliance partners have similar concerns over the ruling administration saying this is an internal matter. Frank Menefumbo is a spokesperson for the UTM party. He told VOA the concerns UTM officials made at the rally are justified.
2: It's an obvious thing that UTM doesn't have very active participation in this government. It is not a secret. It might be also be said that, oh no, you have got four, if not five uh, cabinet posts in the government. But in the real sense of it, without the head of UTM participating in the government, giving direction to those ministers within government, then yes, we can say we, we are being sidelined, yes.
5: However, when Fumbo said the party does not support the views of some that Chirima should quit the alliance.
2: Don't forget that the president of this country, who is the president of Malay Congress, but was elected alongside the president of UTM to form this government. So the position of the party still remains that we will still continue, even though... Uh, with the passive participation of the UTM mm. government who we'll still remain in government because that's what the people of Malawi elected us for.
5: Political analyst George Piri says he feels UTM party will continue complaining unless the issue which made President Chakwera suspend some of Chirima's powers is addressed. In June the Anti Corruption Bureau investigation found that Chirima was on the list of government officials receiving kickbacks from British Malawian businessman Zoneth Rashid Sata. Sata was arrested in Britain last year for allegedly providing bribes to Malawi government officials to win contracts from Malawi's police service, defense force and immigration department. Sata denies the accusations. I am Lamek Masina for UA News in Blanta, Malawi. A
0: spokesperson for the government of Eswatini, formerly Swaziland, says the government has made great strides in infrastructure development since gaining independence from Great Britain 54 years ago. Alfier Zumalo says Emma Swati owed their country's success to the guidance of King Mswati III and founding leader King Sabuza II, but some of the country's civil society groups and politicians say they have nothing to celebrate because they are not free. Mediation efforts by the Southern African Development Community, SADC, for talks to resolve the ongoing political crisis in the kingdom have stagnated. In a message on Tuesday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken underscored the importance of an inclusive national dialogue that demonstrates respect for human rights, freedom of expression, rule of law, and accountability. Spokesperson Zumalo tells me that the Eswatini government is open to a peaceful and candid engagement.
7: To know and to see and to realize the development under the institution of the monarch and the wise guidance of His Majesty King Sobusa II, who negotiated the independence of the country, and to the guidance of His Majesty King Swati III, who has cemented to the Swazi nation the fruits of the independence which we attained in 1968. What do
0: you say to those Emma who say that there's not much to celebrate because they feel that uh, they don't have freedom in the country?
7: We do have challenges like any other country in the world that we are contending with. We are fighting the scourge of disease. We are fighting the scourge of poverty. We are fighting the scourge of illiteracy. But when you look in totality... The kingdom of Eswatini has made great strides in respect to development and accelerating the country into the first world status.
0: There's been allegations by some Swatis that uh, the negotiations by Sadek or the call for dialogue that is supposed to be undertaken by Sadek, that the king has not been interested. In other words, he has just... Uh, frustrated the call for a meaningful dialogue
7: the kingdom of Feswati is not afraid and is not reluctant to hold a national dialogue in order to converse and to open space for political reforms his majesty took a personal initiative in 1991 and those dialogues which he took a personal initiative to gave back to direct parliamentary elections gave back to a new national constitution for which even today any other political reform should be confined within the provisions and the parameters of the national constitution. SEDEK has made recommendations and we don't have that problem with that recommendations. Like we don't have any problem with any suggestions or recommendations by any partners of the kingdom. We are free to interact with the free world and we have always done so. However let the international media do not conveniently ignore or forget. Whilst the kingdom was preparing to hold and convene national dialogue, we had issues of an insurgency that emerged and that were supported from corners of the same such region, which unfortunately I cannot mention today, which supported the miming and killing of our security officers. Massawat were intimidated if they attend or subscribe to a certain ideology, and that created and compounded the situation in the country.
0: There are two members of parliament that are still in prison that have now had their day in court. People have called for the king to release them.
6: Were they arrested
7: by the king?
0: They were arrested by your <laughs> law enforcement.
7: <laughs> the kingdom of 14 is a modern state like any other. The separation of the judiciary, the executive, and the legislature. You are reinforcing the same idea when you say now the king must go and release the two MPs because they were charged. They were not charged by the king. They were charged by the relevant structures and apparatus of our systems in the country. It's only the court that will release them.
0: I put the question that way because your critics believe that the king, King Nswati III, controls everything in your country.
7: That is absolute nonsense, my brother. I'm sorry to put it that way. There is no way the king controls any branch of the government. The kingdom of Eswatini functions the same way like any other modern state in the world functions.
0: Thank you so much again, and uh, happy Independence Day to you.
7: Thank you, Bakul, my brother. We appreciate that. Have a great day.
0: Alfio Sumalo is the Eswatini government spokesperson. You are speaking with us from the capital, Mbabane. And that's it for this Wednesday, September 7th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for joining us this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I'm James Barty in Washington, saying have a beautiful day.